Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to this bonus edition of the Media Podcast. Something a little special for you this week. There's a new podcast in town. It's called How to Fix. The show attempts to fix an issue that politicians or economists or business leaders have struggled to solve. And in this week's episode, they attempt to fix the newspaper industry, which we thought may be of interest to you media podders. So we're going to play it in full. Thanks to the kind people at Prospect Magazine who make that podcast. If you want to subscribe and hear more episodes of it, uh, you can go to prospectmagazine.co.uk slash how to fix. And now, without further ado, here's presenter Steve Bloomfield on how to fix newspapers. Hello, my name is Steve Bloomfield and this is How to Fix, the new weekly podcast from Prospect, where we try to fix some of the country's and the world's most pressing problems. This week, how to fix newspapers. You know, you have two choices as an editor, you think, you know, do I just do something that is diminished and doesn't try to embrace everything that newspapers once were or do I try and think of a different way to do that? Newspapers are in crisis. In fact they've been in crisis for a decade and a half. Sales are down, advertising is down, jobs have been cut, the Independent shut down its print operation, the Guardian is losing tens of millions of pounds a year, the Telegraph is a shadow of its former self. And that's before we even begin to look at the dire situation in the regional and local press where dozens have been forced to close down. In a moment, I'll be joined by Lisa Markwell, the last ever editor of The Independent on Sunday, by Andreas Klute, the editor-in-chief of Handelsblatt Global in Germany, and because we need someone to explain why newspapers don't matter anymore, Jim Waterson, political editor of BuzzFeed News. But first, as ever, here's prospect Stephanie Boland to explain how he got in this mess in the first place. Hello, Steph. Hi, Steve. Okay, newspapers, a topic close to both our hearts. How have we got where we are right now? I think the mess of newspapers is so big, it's difficult to even figure out where you start with this. But let's try. Let's try. So right from the very start, or certainly right from the beginning of the 20th century, newspapers have been in a slightly awkward position in that they're operating somewhere between being a business and being a public service. Yeah. And in some ways, those things have always been in tension. And what you basically have is the public service aspects stopping them being an effective business model and the public's faith in it being ruined by the ways they're trying to reach audiences through fun, opinion, grabbing your attention rather than giving you the straight news. Because there is that other issue, which we didn't talk about at the start, which is 
trust, the public trust in newspapers has fallen through the floor and not just tabloids, which, you know, if you look at polls 20 years ago, a tabloid reporter wasn't very well trusted. But now it's broadsheets, it's mainstream news, it doesn't have the same cachet as it did before. It's completely true. And I think we really saw this during the June general election. Analysis by BuzzFeed, which Jim will hopefully talk to us a bit about later, showed that so many of the most shared articles online during the election were from highly partisan news sites, which have sprung up to fill this need for reporting that people feel isn't part of, as they call it, you know, the right wing mainstream media. The MSM. Of which we're both, you know, obviously key members. <laughs> Car-carrying member for the past 15 years. But more seriously, there is a problem with trust in the broadsheets. And part of that goes back a long way. But a flashpoint, I think, was the Leveson inquiry. Although that was, on the whole, mainly about tabloid newspapers. But I think so many of the newspapers as well, we've got to think, are owned by the same people now. So News UK, which was at the heart of that whole thing, also own The Times. You have the Telegraph Media Group, which is seen as very right-wing, and more traditionally left-wing organisations like The Independent, which is ostensibly independent, but in practice, if you look at its online offering now, kind of skews within the spectrum of British political newspapers, certainly to the left, has gone out of print. And of course, the big thing as well has been the internet. The internet. I mean, it seems such an obvious point to say that this is complicated newspaper publishing, but I think in terms of figuring out what a good online model is for news, everyone's still mostly at a loss. Yeah. So just within the British context, you have places like The Telegraph, which has some of its items free, some of its so-called premium content, which is kind of comment pieces, analysis behind a paywall. You have The Times and The Sunday Times, which are entirely behind a paywall. And then you have places like The Guardian, which are in front of a paywall and rely on a trust that owns them and on people to be willing to contribute freely for their journalism. And I think the big problem is advertising revenue. You know, newspapers have always relied on advertising revenue. What it costs to produce a newspaper can't be met by readers paying for it. It just can't. It never has. The Times, when it started more than 100 years ago, its entire front page was classified adverts. So advertising has always been a heart of it. And to go back to the issue of the internet, the internet has taken away advertising. Jobs aren't advertised in newspapers anymore. Cars aren't advertised in newspapers anymore. Houses, on the whole, aren't advertised in newspapers anymore. These were huge, huge areas that provided revenue to newspapers, and they've all just gone. What's quite interesting on the same note is that advertising has always had quite a difficult relationship to newspapers and I think you're right it's been exacerbated by the internet but when you go back to say the late 19th century you see accusations of people going our oh, newspapers are becoming very salacious and you know writing these bold leading headlines to try and get your eyes on the on the advertisements if you go on the internet now you know we talk about clickbait and you know five top tricks for a flat stomach in the House of Commons or whatever they say. It's a piece that I'm writing today. It's going to do really well on our website. Go to our show notes and read Steve's, <laughs> Steve's clickbait. But this idea of just trying to get the sheer number of eyeballs on goes back to this idea of the business yeah. model versus the public service. Where advertising goes from here, I don't know. It does feel like the bottom has just fallen out of the market. This so-called pivot to video, which I think is laying off every journalist in the US, it seems like, at the moment. Yes. <laughs> Everyone is pivoting to video, as they call it, which basically seems to mean 
sacking everyone and putting up two-minute videos that no one really wants to watch. Well, it's working in some limited ways. So I think Vice have done a relatively good line in their video content, although they've obviously sacked a lot of good journalists in in order to do it. Places like Mike, which is a very left-wing outlet in America, which actually was getting audiences, has also sacked a lot of journalists in the pivot to video. So there are people who are producing good video content, As you say, though, is it what people want to watch? Yeah, I don't understand the pivot to video because actually even the people that is supposedly aimed at millennials, a group that I'm just outside of, uh, I'm led to believe by people like yourself, Steph, who are firmly in it, that you are just as interested in reading a long 4,000 word piece about Frege or North Korea or whatever as someone who is not a millennial. Yes, actually, research shows that millennials are more interested in reading news than other age brackets, I think partially because so often we're reading news on our phones on the tube or at our desks at work where you can't play a video. And actually some of the websites who have begun this pivot to video, so Fox News has a service called Fox Sports, and you'd think sports news would be an ideal platform for making inventive video. And, And after they undertook their pivot to video, they lost a staggering amount of their web traffic. Okay, finally, before we move on, let's just talk briefly about paywalls. And before you do, this word, paywall, I don't understand it. it it's such an exclusionary word. It's essentially saying, don't come in here. I think that's how a lot of readers see it. And this comes back to the that tension between the business and the public service in that a lot of readers, I think, feel news and comment should be accessible and so when you come across something on the internet that asks you to sign up in order to read it Mm. instantly people are turned off and this is a real problem so the times and the sunday times have a relatively successful paywall model Um, and if you've not been on their website you get two or three paragraphs of a story yeah that sort of fades out and then you've got to sign in to pay how much it is but visits to the times website have decreased by 87 percent since the paywall was introduced so they went from 21 million unique users per month which is a great number to 2.7 million but the times is working the times is a viable business it's one of the few that seems to still be making a little bit of money and they are managing to get those subscribers in so i think this figure is now out of date but as of october 2011 which wasn't too long after they launched their paywall they already had over a hundred thousand subscribers I think I don't have a problem with the idea of a paywall at all because I think people should pay for journalism. I, I've got a problem with the word. I just think it's, you know, if you go to the theatre, you don't pay to go through the paywall. You buy a ticket. There must be a better word. I don't know what it is. Maybe we'll come up with it before the end of the show. Anyway. <laughs> I hope we can. I mean, this is what the okay. Telegraph have tried to do with premium. but Yeah, but then that just gets mocked. Anyway, OK, <laughs> fine. So... To recap, there are paywalls. Not working. Which which is sort of working in some cases, but not working in in others. Pivot to video, bad. Advertising. Down. Clickbait. Bad. Trust in journalism. Low. People reading broadsheets anymore. Are there any? So there are problems. But don't worry. We have people who are going to be joining us who have solutions. Uh, Stephanie Byland for now. Thank you very much. There is a country where they still read newspapers, Germany. 
And yes, we're aware that we keep on going back to Germany, but, you know, they do do some things quite well. Andreas Klute is the editor-in-chief of Handelsblatt Global, the English-language version of the daily newspaper Handelsblatt. Before that, he was the Berlin bureau chief of The Economist, so he knows a thing or two about the British situation too. And he joins us now from Berlin. Andreas Klute, thank you very much for joining us today. Is the German newspaper industry in better health than the UK's? I certainly think it's in better health than the UK's. That's not saying much, possibly. I mean, just for perspective, the German newspaper market is huge, but in my opinion, overserved. And it has also stagnated both circulation and print advertising revenue. But one big difference is just how many papers there still are. I mean, the stereotype is that Germans are a nation of readers, both in, in books, for instance. Ebooks have taken off less here than paper books. And bookstores are different. There's an entire culture and even some regulations. And if you go into cafe in Germany, there are lots of these old-fashioned paper newspapers hanging there. And people are sipping on their coffees and, and actually reading them. So there is that. But they're not doing well. And there are too many of these newspapers. Before we get on to the problems the industry has, why do you think there is still this this love and affection for print in Germany? Well, it's the same in the book and in the newspaper market. In the book market, it's even supported by regulations, as I said. I think Germans view themselves, like Austrians and probably other Central Europeans, as a, a nation of readers and writers. And there is an appreciation for that, in the, especially in the older generations and among the middle-aged among the younger people, that already is totally different, and they're going to go online first and stay there, uh, just like young people anywhere else. You worked for The Economist for 20 years. You know the British industry very well indeed. What advice would you have for your British colleagues? If we're specifically comparing the UK press and the German press, I'll give you a few numbers. For this, Germany is the most populous country in Europe, yes. However... It has seven national newspapers, which is a lot. It has eight free publications. It has 20 weeklies. It has seven Sunday newspapers. And, and now get ready for the ne this next one. That's really the exception. It has 330 local and regional newspapers. And one huge difference for the industry as a whole, because I lived in America through the, the, the total collapse of the newspaper industry there when Craigslist came along and all the regional newspapers went away first. And what, what survived were a couple of, only a couple of national brands. But in Germany, the regional newspapers, often small towns with strong regional roots, deep roots, they're doing fantastically well. They're making loads of money. They're still getting all the regional advertisements. They've become sort of community uh, centers almost for that little village, town, or region. And so those are the economically strongest newspapers. And the ones where I'm expecting a shakeout in the coming years is these seven national newspapers where there's insufficient differentiation. Now, that would be step one uh, also for a cut. But an another difference that I see is, is the, just the editorial line of the national newspapers. If we just talk about the national newspapers, you know, in Britain, uh, you have the FT, you have a weekly, that's The Economist, but that's sort of not even very British anymore. I mean, 20% or so are, of the readers there are British. It's really a global magazine. And the FT is, in a way, a supranational brand as well. But if you look at the national brands, Times, Telegraph, and so forth, I mean, something strange has happened there in British journalism. It is 
a form of dumbing down over the years to scandal and this exaggeration and hype. Clearly, I mean, if you compare a relative to a relative, the, the Germans go into much more depth. They are much more nuanced. They're much less extreme. There are differences, right and left, and all of that. And so as a result, general trust in Germany towards their press in general, but in particular their newspapers, has remained pretty high. And there is a balanced diet. And a lot of these newspapers have an upmarket strategy. They ask a lot of readers. So if you were to give any advice, it would essentially be, you know, go serious, go in depth, stay honest. I think my advice to individual newspaper editors is always you need to know your market segmentation and you're going to do whatever fits your niche. Because even in America, there's Fox News and there's, and there's NPR and, and you, don't, you want to know where you are, which part of the market. But I think Fleet Street as, as a whole has underestimated probably the degree to which a lot of there is a large enough market in, in Britain for high quality, possibly occasionally also longer form, although it doesn't have to mean more word count, but deeper, more serious, more balanced journalism. Andreas Klute in Berlin, thank you very much indeed. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Lisa Markwell was editor of The Independent on Sunday from 2013 to 2016. Her reign ended when the newspaper closed. The Indies' owners deciding that print was no longer needed and that digital was the way forward. And Lisa Markwell joins us now. Lisa, hello. Hello. Can we start at the beginning? Mm-hmm. When did your newspaper career begin? My newspaper career began actually in the sort of almost like a, a glory era for British newspapers when uh, The Independent had recently launched as a daily paper, Monday to Saturday, and was doing very, very well. I mean, it was, you know, at a, at a time, it was almost challenging the times for its circulation. This was the uh, late uh, This 80s. was the late 80s. But they had said that they were not going to open a Sunday paper. And so a group of sort of rather disenchanted journalists from The Telegraph and other papers decided that there was a gap for something to challenge the observer to be a little more independent with a small eye of the broadly right-wing 
Sunday Press and launched a newspaper called The Sunday Correspondent. It had an extremely impressive roll call of people who've gone on to amazing things. Ian Katz, Ben McIntyre, Mick Brown, Henry Porter, Ian Parker, amazing people. And, and I was a sort of lowly deputy features editor. And uh, the paper launched. It wasn't going to challenge the Times, but it was a successful paper. Mm. And then The Independent thought, well, actually, we think we'll do it. And so they launched The Independent on Sunday uh, in 1990, and that was the death knell for the Sunday Correspondent. But I'd been bitten by the bug. Up Thus far, I'd been in magazines, but mm. that made me think, I love current affairs and I want to stick around. And then after that, you mainly stuck around in newspapers through the 90s and 2000s? I did, although I, sort of unusually for someone who ended up where I did, actually sort of toggled between magazines and newspapers. I was never a news reporter. I was mm. never sort of, you know, out knocking on doors and, and sort of hassling, you know, government press offices for stories. I was more of a features person, which I loved and is something that you can do across a range of titles. And every newspaper, I think, actually from that point, around that point was when the supplements and the sort of feature sections really started to take off as hard news became you know, that was the very beginning of the time in which people were getting their news in different ways. And so a newspaper as a breaking news forum was sort of slightly starting to be on its very slow decline, which is now, of course, a cliff. And so features were important. And so that's how I managed to sort of work my way backwards and forwards. And, and you know, whenever I felt like the deadlines were sort of too awful and the hours too grim on a newspaper, I could go to a magazine and, and so on and so on. And during the 1990s, did you feel that newspapers and the industry was in a good place? There were there seemed to be there was lots of competition. It was yes, yeah, certainly for some people relatively well paid. Uh, there weren't sort of the threats of cuts and advertising revenue losses and so on that you were seeing now necessarily. I think it wasn't as difficult as as it is now, but it was certainly a time. I mean, there was an investment in it. I suppose that the the, the belief that you know the big name commentators. And the, you know, the, as I said, the colour supplements and all of those things were very important and that news was still sort of ring-fenced in some way. I mean, we weren't sort of splashing the cash like the 80s, but certainly uh, it was still a, a, a sort of viable going concern. And things like, I mean, I was remembering this the other day, when TV listings were deregulated, up until then they had only been possible for them to be in, I think, two magazines. Suddenly they were deregulated. And so all of the newspapers rushed to have TV listings magazines, which, of course, gave everyone circulation bump because people were like great I can get my tell you know I can find out what's on television this is in the days of course before you know electronic listings it were things like that so whenever it seemed like perhaps there was a bit of a lull you know suddenly people became very interested in food and so you know all the magazines all the newspapers launched food sections so there was always something that um you know would, would sort of buoy it up even if news was was declining what went wrong is it as simple as just saying well the internet happened well the internet certainly happened in a very big way I mean, I remember when we first, you know, sort of got our heads around this thing. And working at The Independent, I mean, it seems ludicrous to say this now, but the owners and management sort of almost felt as if the internet was a bit of a flash in the pan. And so there was no investment whatsoever in the digital side for that particular title. Um, and of course, others, I think The Guardian is a, a good example, saw very quickly that um, to survive, that they would have to embrace that and become a newspaper that had both presences but uh, certainly in terms of advertising revenue I think yeah that was very much the beginning of the end because of course that is what is such a huge part of, of what is sustain you know makes a newspaper sustain that's the sort of cash that you actually need. Can we talk about then your time at the Independent on Sunday you took over at a time when 
I mean, the indie in its last 15 years was always seemed to be six months away from possibly being the end. What was it like to run a newspaper with a small team that was doing well to punch above its weight, but was under all this pressure? It was a very difficult time. I mean, I started at The Independent in 1998 and almost immediately was told that the paper was about to go out of business. So when I took over... I was told that when I started in 2002. (laughs) So when I took over the editorship uh, and, uh, you know, sure enough, oh, well, of course, you won't be around for long. It'll all be rolled into the daily paper and so on and so forth. I was like, well, I've heard it all before, you know. But I was very quickly given an extremely stiff wake-up call with having to make quite a lot of people redundant and really, really sort of pull in our horns in a way that I didn't think was actually really sustainable and so you know you have two choices as an editor you think you know do I just do something that is diminished and doesn't try to embrace everything that newspapers once were or do I try and think of a different way to do that and so for instance we had to completely change our arts coverage but you know I still felt that it was valid and you just did a newspaper a different way and actually what I wanted to do was make the newspaper much more forward-looking because of course newspapers have always that's part of their sort of beauty in the past was their sort of reactiveness and that's where you sit and get the sort of considered views and, and the sort of analysis. Well, actually, that time is, you know, people aren't doing that anymore. So do newspapers become something different? That was sort of, I, I think, quite an interesting point. But it was, you know, to publish a newspaper, a weekly newspaper, national, with a big circulation and a big, big waterfront cover with a core staff of 12. Twelve. Know, Twelve. <laughs> I knew it was small, but... <laughs> we won a press award, actually, for um, front page of the year when I was editor. High point of my career, absolutely. And I went on stage and picked up the little glass prize and uh, asked the uh, presenter if I could have another 11. And he looked slightly questioning. And uh, in front of all the serried ranks, all the Times journalists and all the Guardian journalists, you know, table after table, I said, oh, yeah, I need another 11 because um, that's not the people who did the front page. That's actually the staff of The Independent on Sunday. <laughs> and there was this horrified silence for quite a long time. And then, to be fair, applause, warm applause. Let's talk about the end. How long did you have between being told that the newspaper was closing in it? And the final issue? We had, I think it was six weeks. And what was it like? Uh, Well, after the initial devastation, I think is the word, when I think back to it now, I just remember knowing, because I knew a little bit in advance that people were about to get this news. There were a lot of tears. People were heartbroken. It's, It's one of those places that you work where people are there because they believe in it still, even at that point. And after a sort of mammoth drinking session in the good old tradition of newspapers, everybody actually, certainly in The Independent on Sunday, but from one or two people who, you know, rightly felt aggrieved and very upset and worried about their futures, most people said, well, we, we're going to go out, you know, the way we've always done. We're going to go out fighting, as you say, punching above our weight. We're going to do a damn good newspaper right up until the last. And then we can... And for me, I didn't want to stay around and work on the digital side. I felt that I could walk away having, you know, done everything I, I could. What have we lost? What has the reader lost or the country lost by not having the independent and the independent on Sunday as that voice at this very important time? I think it's a huge loss. I I really do, Um, both as someone who was involved, but also as a a person who's interested in politics and current affairs. Um, When you think about everything that's gone on in that 18 months, Donald Trump, the EU referendum, what's going on with Theresa May, you know, the snap general election, that really there is, 
apart from the Guardian, there isn't anybody sort of really questioning what what's going on. And when I look at the coverage of Brexit, you know, I absolutely despair. And the Independent, you know, people used to joke about the fact that it had its own agenda, and they would sort of put a picture of a whale on the front page and say why oh why, and you know. But actually, it was a paper that did sort of ask the awkward questions and, and you know push people's buttons, and that's missing. And I really think that voice is missing, and that's a great shame for everybody because that's what makes debate. And just finally, do you think? the newspaper industry can bounce back? What I always dreaded was uh, people would occasionally say, oh, newspapers are doomed, and maybe the way forward is to for people to sort of almost have a bespoke newspaper, whether that's print or digital, where they get sort of just the, the news, the things that they're interested in. So if you were interested in Arsenal Football Club and, you know, food, it would be tailored that way. And I always thought that was just a terrifying prospect because, you know, then you're not getting a full spectrum of news. But where we are now... I feel like we've sort of crossed that Rubicon or jumped that shark or whatever you want to call it. And that actually is possibly, that is a way forward for titles to become slightly more specialised, slightly more targeted, to have a different business model, certainly with a, you know smaller circulations for sure. But if you look at the success of, I mean, magazines like Prospect, The Economist, New Statesman, those sort of news magazines, which have quite a tight brief, they're doing better. So I, all is not completely lost, but I think there needs to be a massive shake up. Lisa Markwell, thank you very much. Thank you. Since we're talking about newspapers and their glory days, we've decided to do what any good journalist of old would do and retire to the pub. But we're not here to talk about the old days, we're here to discuss the future. And we've been joined by Jim Watson, political editor of BuzzFeed News. Jim, hello. Hello. Um, Let's start with talking about BuzzFeed. It's online only, you don't have the print overheads that a traditional newspaper would have. Uh, What other advantages do you have as an online only organisation that you feel today's crop of newspapers are perhaps lacking in? Well the main thing we've got is total freedom. So we don't have a newspaper to fill on a daily basis. We don't need to file stories just for the hell of having a story to go live. And if there's something we find really interesting, um, it doesn't matter so much if it's not on the national news agenda, we can just pursue it and go down our own route. So the main thing is, and, and often people seem to imagine at BuzzFeed, we, we sort of sit around in our underpants, underpants on our sofa, uh, lounging around on beanbags and kind of, uh, you know, just, just filing lists like that. Weirdly, we're actually quite a traditional newsroom. We have a morning conference, we come in, we pitch ideas. Uh, but the main thing is more about our story selection. We actually publish a lot less than most newspapers. We just try and have a higher impact and more readers and move stories on more. We don't just file stories and filler for the hell of it. Do you feel like a lot of traditional newspapers, even those who uh, have a very large online presence, are still trying to do journalism in the old way of, well, here's a new wrinkle on this story, let's do another 600 words? There's two big issues with where news is online in the UK at the moment. One is that you've still got everyone trying to do everything. It's crazy to my mind that you have 20 near identical reports of every Prime Minister's speech that goes online. You don't really need that many. The public aren't that interested. You're not going to be able to get a lot of readers on that. You're much better off trying to do something distinctive, even if it's very niche. And you'll actually perversely sometimes find you get way more readers on something that's exclusive and niche than you will on the big story of the day. The other issue I find with a lot of online places is because 
everyone's reliant on Facebook for traffic and because certain stories and certain headline formats, uh, it's like a code. You can crack the human emotion and work out what people will respond to. Everyone's content is starting to look the same. Everyone's stories are blending into one. You could be on the Telegraph or the Independent or you know, even the BBC sometimes and find the headline is near identical because you know, once you've worked out that human emotion plus good picture plus heartwarming outcome is what results in clicks, then everyone follows that. Could you maybe tell us, you talk about finding that niche, what are some examples of stories that you've done that you'd think would have quite niche appeal that have actually kind of taken off? Because you guys really come at things from a left field way sometimes. Yeah, and it's really hit and miss. It's, it's hard to predict, but you normally know within about five minutes of pushing something on Twitter whether you're going to have something that people are really interested in. Generally, it, the reassuring thing is that interesting things get read. I always use the three terms funny, different or exclusive. If it fits one of those three categories, then you're going to get readers. And if it doesn't, then you probably won't. Uh, because almost all of BuzzFeed's readers come to us from Facebook, Twitter or social sites. We don't have that same core readership that the BBC and The Guardian does where people click on the homepage as much. We've got to make them come to us. So you, we've really got to work to make the stories good. I always think in politics, the one that gets me is hereditary peers. I mean, they are the most boring niche aspects of the House of Lords and we've written loads about them and people love reading about them you know you've got 92 people who are only there because their great great grandmother uh, slept with some king back in the day uh, and uh, no matter how many times you tell the story no matter how weird the details are people keep coming back for more on that so you'd think any newspaper would go that is a page 27 uh, two paragraph job but we've done 4,000 word essays on them which have been really well read and, you know, it's the same when we write about how the media is changing. That, a few years ago, would have been considered maybe something for an academic journal or maybe at best for a Guardian media supplement. But they can be really well read. Um, they can do hundreds of thousands of views because people want to get uh, something that really changes their idea of how, how they see the world. So it's, it's only ever when you put the work in and go in depth that you get the readers. You, uh, and, and equally, that means that you can't get as many readers on the quick hits. Um, well, since you raised that issue of media stories and talking about how the media has changed, you've written a lot yourself about this sort of new wave of uh, media outlets. We've seen, uh, obviously, the alt-right, the Breitbarts of this world uh, during the Trump election. We've seen the Sputniks and the RTs. But you've also written about this new wave of left-wing publications like Evolve Politics, Squawkbox and, and others that have really had a bit more of an impact than people that who get their news from traditional sources would perhaps have realized this was one of the really big breakout things for my mind that changed during the last general election and if you're trying to pin one thing on how did suddenly jeremy corbyn surge in the polls what was it that made a load of people come round to him people have got to hear about those ideas somewhere and it's hard to argue that they were hearing about them from the traditional printed media um the broadcasters were fairly neutral in a way that they weren't necessarily before the campaign, so that helped. But the big shift is just the number of people reading about politics on Facebook. Now, I know this is all cliched and obvious to most of the people who are listening to this, but I, I sometimes think that people talk about social media like it's one big blob. It's not. It's just the medium for delivering these sites in a different manner. So there's a small clique of sites, um, Canary, another angry voice, uh, evolve politics, places like that. Now these are not at the scale of national newspapers yet, 
they're still largely existing within a labor-friendly filter bubble. Um, if I was to completely guess their potential reach, uh, we'd be talking in the single-digit millions, but maybe in the high millions collectively during this campaign. But people don't really read them like you would a newspaper. Then They've not quite got a loyal readership, but they are pumping out essentially left-wing tabloid material in a way that we haven't ever had in the UK, um, even well to the left of the mirror. And, you know, by their own admission, some of them compare themselves to the sun. You know, we are... If the Conservatives can have an unashamed cheerleader in the media, why can't Jeremy Corbyn have it? And why can't we fulfil that role? And there's a public there who have been enthused by Jeremy Corbyn who desperately want to read stories about, you know, this one tweet by a Tory MP proves why uh, the Conservatives should never be elected. Theresa May just dropped a massive truth bomb and you'll never believe what she said. Stuff like that, which it's easy to mock, but, you know, I can't really come up with an argument that says this isn't what the Sun and the Mail and to a certain extent the Telegraph have been doing for years on the right. Um, we've been trying to answer the question, you know, how do you fix newspapers? Are we sort of asking the wrong question? Because it's, I don't want us to give the impression that we want to try and hark back to some glory days of the 70s or 80s or whenever anyone thinks the glory days were, where you know there were four or five newspapers and everyone got their news from that source as being the, the gold standard that everyone should aim for. Is there, a, is there a different gold standard that we should be aiming for that you think is possibly within sight? I'm going to slightly flip that on its head and say that the big question that I'm struggling with at the moment is what do we count as the news media in the UK? So it used to be really easy. You had uh, TV, radio and newspapers, either national or local. And that was pretty easy. You could draw a line around that and go, that is the media. If you're getting good coverage in that, that's what people are consuming. Now, we've got these sites that we've added into the mix that we've just talked about, Evolve Politics, another angry voice, Canary. Are they the media or are they just activist blogs? And then you add Facebook groups. So if I put a post up and I am just a random person, I'm sitting, uh, you know, I'm in Grimsby, I've just uh, had a terrible experience with the DWP, I've put up a personal first-person story of the sort that 10 years ago you'd have had to have taken to a newspaper to get published. And if that then goes viral and gets read by 2 million people, is that the media? Um, If you're trying to fix something with such a leaky boundary... Um, you know, regulation, enforcement of standards, improving things is really hard. If the public want to read that Facebook status more than they want to read the balanced analysis piece by a proper journalist who's done things, quote, the right way, what do you do about that? How do you, essentially it's a struggle, how do you force the public to eat their greens and should you force them to do that? Do, do they have to have their good stuff um, you know, because that's what we all think is right for them to consume. Or can they just gorge on, you know, videos on uh, on Facebook put up by basically members of the public, which, you know, five years ago, those videos would have reached the audience by being mediated at least by perhaps uh, a site that put a phone call into the police and double-checked some of the facts. But now that that's never going to happen. So the issue for me is what what, what is the media, um, which is more relevant than it sounds. It sounds like a slightly esoteric question, but it really does matter. I guess the other thing is not only how do you get the public to consume, you know, to eat their greens, as they say, but how on earth do you monetize that? Because to have the journalists necessary to scrutinize the sort of raw data of stories that you get in, you've got to pay somebody's salary. BuzzFeed have got a ad model, there's paywall models online, but again, if you've got 
your media coming from a private citizen in Grimsby, the cash dries up pretty fast. I know that's a slightly cynical argument, but it's an important one in terms of bringing that scrutiny to what we're bringing in. Well, I mean, it's not cynical in a sense because it's that's how it works. If, if you can't get someone to pay for it, then on the whole, or certainly at least traditionally, Jim, you haven't then been able to carry on. You could write your one post, but then you've got your job to do. The future of political media, certainly the way I see it going, is of having a small number of incredibly in-depth, accurate, uh, better journalism has ever existed in any age before sites read by a few million people. You'll find better analysis, more factual stuff, uh, stuff full of graphs, explanations, um, you know, essentially fact-checked collectively by Twitter. and subsidised by a combination of paywalls, uh, sites like BuzzFeed, which have um, an ad model which doesn't necessarily rely on display ads as much, and also things like think tanks where they sort of blur the line. And then on the other side, you're going to have the biggest crock of shit that you've ever seen. And I I really do think that it's going to be a mass of swirling, innuendo, basically false headlines, pure flicking through your Facebook feed fodder of the lowest common denominator stuff and what's going to die is the middle ground the sort of today Theresa May said this you're either going to have we've got the definitive guide to what Theresa May's top team are thinking or oh my god did you see the Conservatives are eating babies again well that's a cheery way to end it Uh, Jim Watson from BuzzFeed News thank you very much indeed thank you so as Jim heads off to the bar uh, Steph I mean, I hesitate to ask, have we fixed it? Because it sounds like the future's going to be uh, absolutely awful. I think what we've done is we've created a great industry for a new generation of libel lawyers from the sound of it. I mean, my sense from working in the industry, I don't know what your read is, is that, as Jim puts it, we've got an increasingly disparate industry. We've got a big gap between the wonks and the kind of emotive reporting. On the other hand, I don't know how you bridge that. I would say, you know, state media like the BBC, other places that are independently funded, maybe have a hope on giving you your fairly neutral headlines. Beyond that, I think it is going to be quite difficult. So... um, I'm not sure we have fixed it. <laughs> What's interesting, though, is that both Jim and Lisa earlier talked about a similar model for the future, this idea that you would have smaller niche publications, whether in print or online, that, uh, that were trusted and that there were enough people. Now, whether that was a small print audience of 20,000, 30,000 or a larger online audience of maybe you know hundreds of thousands or small millions, who would actually trust that publication and it would be well researched very well fact-checked um, it would have some sort of intellectual heft behind it so maybe there is a future for journalism and journalists we hope but whether we fix it in terms of the old style newspaper system I very much doubt and that then also raises the bigger existential question which is if you have niche publications speaking to what will always be, I think, a minority of the population. You know, is it a problem that most people might move towards a day-to-day existence where they're not encountering traditional journalism? Um, Instinctively, I think that is a problem, but I'm a journalist. I would instinctively say that's a problem. Um, So I think the way, as Jim mentioned, 
politicians mediate their messages. The way we do kind of the day-to-day coverage of the political and cultural sphere is going to change enormously. What impact that will have on people's lives, I'm not sure I have an answer to. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. That is it for How to Fix. My thanks to Lisa Markwell, Jim Watson, Andreas Clute, and, of course, Steph Boland. How to Fix was recorded and edited by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio here in the heart of Westminster. For further reading, go to prospectmagazine.co.uk slash howtofix. Uh, we will have links to Lisa Markwell's last ever front page for The Independent on Sunday. Uh, we'll also have a link to Jim Watson's big piece about uh, left-wing news outlets. Let's, uh, and there'll be more information there about Andres Klute and Handelsblatt Global. Uh, if you want to tweet us, and why not? I'm at Bloomfield SJ. Steph is at Stephanie Boland. Um, also, please do pick up a copy of Prospect Magazine. It's on newsstands right now. If you want to subscribe, go to our website. You'll find all the details there. Join us next week for How to Fix, when we try to work out how to fix that Westminster institution. Prime Minister's questions. I'm Steve Bloomfield. That was How to Fix. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.